Welcome to the Deceptively Fast Podcast. Thank you for joining us once again. Fun show today. We've got Sean Pendergast with his picks for select upcoming NFL games. We've got Michael Lombardi weighing in on the Texans, the Browns, the Patriots, and a whole bunch of other things. Tomorrow, very special guest, a friend of mine and acquaintance who also played in the Ivy League. He played for Princeton, Ross Tucker. Ross Tucker, who has a very successful podcast uh, and media career Really good conversation with him. Please join us and subscribe on iTunes, subscribe on radio.com. If you could leave us a rating, that would be incredible as well. Really enjoying all the feedback I'm getting. And any questions for upcoming podcasts, please send them to Seth at deceptivelyfast.com. And for now, enjoy the show. Sean, I'm so happy to see you, but at the same time, I feel very disoriented because we had a Monday night football game here in Houston, and everything seems way accelerated. It's almost, it creates like a holiday week dynamic where everything feels, uh, everything feels like a day off. Yeah. Like not, I don't mean a day off like a vacation day, I mean off by a day. Mm-hmm. And so I'm the same way, man. I'm a creature of habit. It's uh, like the, the end of the week is approaching too rapidly. Yes. Because we prepare for the weekend specifically. It's not like we're looking we're looking forward to the weekend, but it's also part of our work week. It bunches up my work, too, because as you know, I do a lot of writing for the Houston Press. So I, during, the, during the weeks where there's a game at Sunday at noon, you know, I've got a preview that comes out on Friday for the game. I've got a post that comes out on Monday as a recap of the game. And then, and then Tuesday is a college football. Thursday is the best bets, which we'll talk about here. Friday is the next preview. When there's a Monday game, i got to, like, find something to talk about for the previous Friday. And then I'm jamming a preview on Monday morning. And I've got to stay up till 3 in the morning doing a recap of the game. Uh. So it messes me up. Yeah, the people want their recaps oh, the following do. morning. Because, you know, I do the postgame show, so I'm right. not done until one thirty in the uh, morning with do that. You, do you take notes? I mean, I know you take notes, but like during the post game show, are you kind of formulating? Okay, this is what I want to write about. Yeah, like, I do. So that probably helps. It That's do, part it, of your process. It helps construct the backbone because the format that I do the the recaps in, and if you want to find them, they're on HoustonPress.com, and you can find my archive. I just I, I feel people like just consuming kind of bullet pointed things. I think about games sometimes as opposed to these long arcing, you know, long form stuff. So I yeah. do four winners, four losers for each game, and it can be a player, it can be a position group, it can be a coach. It can be a certain specific point in the game, but um, I do four winners, four losers. And when you do a post-game show and you get phone calls the whole time, it does kind of help you formulate, okay, these are the things that are really going to resonate with people as far as what, what happened in the game. Is there something about writing for the internet where it's become a style unto itself? Because I notice even at bigger publications now, almost even with their longer form stuff, it seems much more bullet pointed yeah like it's more par- it's almost like you're writing 20 individual paragraphs more than you are like an actual long form piece it too i think there's two ends to that seth one is it's easier to write that way uh-huh. because it's more just stream of conscious so and, if you're and trying to churn out content yeah that's the best way to do it's it. the best way to do it because these are all like those four winners four losers are really just eight very concise thoughts that i just need to go from my brain out my fingers onto the keyboard. So it's easier it's easier to put content out that way for one. And I do think people I think people like consuming it that way. There there's so much you know this from doing a podcast and from doing a radio show. There's so much stuff it's out just, there nowadays. It's, it's like so there's just so much stuff out there nowadays and people want more and more and more and more stuff. And they want and and I think 
and I know this from being a consumer as well as a content provider, is I find it hard to sit down and read a lot of long-form things unless it's a topic I'm super, super interested in. There's a lot of me that's like, okay, let's get to the point here. Mm-hmm. And you even see it uh, on Sports Illustrated, SI.com. Uh, I don't know the last time I picked up an actual magazine. So there are articles online. They actually do a thing now that I think is pretty cool. Like even for their longer articles, they they have a little box right before the article starts with three bullet points as to what sort of the overall arcing uh, topics are in yeah. the article. So you read those, and it, it's almost like a warning label, like <laughs> of, of uh, like a like a relevance warning label. You know what I mean? Like you read these three bullet points, and and for me, I read them and I go, okay, is this is this now an article I want to go spend time reading? Or um, do these bullet points tell me that – do I get enough from those bullet points? Or does it tell me, like, ah, eh, pro- I probably need to move on to something else? Because a lot of times I'm reading these, like 90% of the time I'm reading them going, is this something I can turn into mm-hmm. a topic on the show, the same way you guys do on Mad Radio? Well, and that's where it gets interesting is, okay, we realize people have so many things competing for their attention, and the likelihood of getting somebody to sit down – and pay attention to something for a half hour and stare at it. Seems like it's getting it seems like it's getting harder and harder. Where now even on podcasts, maybe this is what I'm noticing because I've got more of an appetite for it, but it seems like you're seeing more of the written word just actually distributed in podcast form. Yeah. Like this uh, Steve McNair podcast about the murder suicide of Steve McNair. Yeah. I think that's just that's just a long form journalism piece that's got interviews and has the actual interview subjects and everything. But for the most part, you're just presenting you're presenting a long form piece of journalism with a few of the raw materials included. The I think I've talked about this podcast. Well, oh oh and real quick. And yeah. the point being that people are a captive audience when they're driving in their car. Yeah. That they'll listen to it while they're driving their car. Yeah, yeah. It's a <laughs> right. It there is a there's still this heavy lifting aspect to having to sit down and read the written word with your brain as opposed to it being spoon fed through your ears yeah. to you. You're right about that. Um, I think I've told you about this podcast either on either on the air, you know, on your podcast or off the air, but the Business Wars podcast. Yes, you've told me about it's that. It's the same that's the same concept as the Steve McNair podcast. It's they they pick some sort of battle between two companies. The one that got me hooked was Netflix versus Blockbuster, and there was a book written about that. And all they really did was get with the author of that book, chop the book up into eight chunks and turn it into eight 20, 25 minute episodes. Yeah where they were capturing different parts of that war between those two companies. So yeah, I think you're right. The 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 maybe the um the long form journalism, the long form articles are being captured in a different in a different medium that allows people to still conduct their hustle and bustle lives. Because you do need to sit, like to read, you need to be sitting and reading. Right, people who are in their cars right now, like you can't. <laughs> be, their, I know we've all like tried iPhone. to hold it and read an article, like while we're sitting in traffic. But. Oh, I'm a sucker now. By the way, like between Kindle and Audible, a lot of times I'll be listening to a book on Audible, yeah. and then I realize, like, wow, I really want to be able to bookmark a lot of this stuff. So then I go back and I double dip and I buy the Kindle on it. Oh and yeah, I, they got gotcha. you. So, so so for the publishing industry, which was supposedly about to die. They're getting me for like forty bucks, you know, yeah. for the same book. I'm buying it twice. I can I just tell you, I've never listened to an audio book before. I Do you like them. I like it a lot. It depends on what you're listening to. Um, I actually like it for biographies. Yeah. Um, like I'm listening to it for one. I'm listening to a biography of Frederick Douglass. The running time on it is 28 hours. 
I don't know how thick that book is in mm-hmm. real life, but I know I wouldn't finish It'd it. It'd be daunting. I wouldn't yeah. do it. Like right. so now I just I listen to I listen to this story for, you know, twenty or thirty minutes at a time and I I feel like I'm learning something like in a in a big, big way. It's a fascinating book. Who's whose voice is on it? Oh, is, I mean, like, not, maybe not, not specifically. The, is it like it's some not the author? Is it like just some random male voice? Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The Which, funniest thing is this one actually might be the author. He's pretty good. The funny ones are sometimes where it just sounds like an older, proper dude who's reading, um, like a um. Oh, I can't think of the name of the author right now. He's from uh, the Mickey Rourke was in a movie called Barfly. It was about this author. Okay. For the life of me, I can't remember. But he's kind of like it's a lot of profanity and everything. Okay. And uh, and he'll be reading it and he'll be like, "So I said to him, get out of my face, you cocksucker." Like, <laughs> <laughs> Charles Bukowski. Charles Bukowski. Yeah. That's right. Yep. Um. So so those are kind of funny. Yeah. I I I might get more. Audiobooks, if I could pick the voice that read them to me, like you can pick the voice on your uh, GPS on the uh, on your phone, like you could have a British voice or a yeah. Like, like I would pick like the chick who does the Sildenafil commercials on our station, <laughs> yeah. like I, like that. She's very sexy. I would pick that for some books. I would definitely pick James Earl Jones to read the book to mm, me. I wonder what his fee is for something like that. I That's was, the next step. As those get more and more popular, they'll start paying for big name narrators. The new Lion King movies coming out where they CGI'd like animals that look real into yeah, it, it instead. Good. The anime one. Yeah, I'd never seen the animated one, and I put it on Twitter. I'd never seen it, and of course, I got Twitter shamed for never seeing The Lion King. So I watched it over Thanksgiving weekend, and I was very impressed by it. But I, as I'm watching it, and I'm watching the preview of the new one, I'm like, man, that is somebody who we will miss when he is gone. Mm-hmm. James Earl Jones, the voice of Darth Vader. Yeah, Joffy Joffer in Coming to America. He's got to be getting up there, isn't he? He's, He's got to be. be in, yeah. He's got to be. He was Darth Vader in like 1976. Yeah. So yeah, we'll we will. Uh, we will miss him when he's gone. So you've got your picks this I week, do. and this is fascinating to me because you know we watched the Texans here beat the Broncos a couple weeks ago, and and everybody was wondering like, oh boy, what a everybody here in Houston was wondering what's a, how good are the Texans? They just squeaked one out versus the Broncos, and now they've gone and they beat two of the best teams in football, and the Chargers and the Steelers two weeks in a row. Yeah. The the crazy thing is, and I didn't even go back. I just pulled the schedule up. Because I, I, I wanted to look over the last six games. I don't even know who they played the week before the Rams. But they're 3-3 three and three in the last six games, playing the Rams, to whom they lost by three. Then they beat the Cardinals. Okay, that's what good teams should do. They lost to the Chiefs by seven, so a one-score game to the Chiefs. They lost to the Texans by two. Yeah. So they lost to a team with a very good winning record by two. They, and then they defeated the Chargers. They beat the Steelers. They're 3-3 three and three over a stretch of which they played the Rams, the Chiefs, the Texans, the Chargers, and the Steelers. Yeah. I have no idea what to make of the Broncos right now. Here's he, And they're playing the Bengals. You're picking the Broncos. I'm picking the game, Broncos over the Bengals. Yeah, the Bengals are starting Jeff Driscoll at quarterback. The Bengals are, a, are, are just a steaming hot mess right now. They were started the season 4-1. and one. They're 5-6. and six. They got smoked. They lost to the Browns 35-20 last week, and it's crazy to say this. That game was a lot more of a blowout than 35-20. It, it like really they, was. They scored. It was 35-7 at the half, I mm-hmm. think, in that game. And the Browns just kind of, kind of cruised into the into their parking space. Here's what's this Broncos thing. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna steer this into a Texans topic that that I think is something that I haven't brought up on the air yet, just because we're still in the midst of this euphoria of this eight-game winning streak. And I hate to bring up next season while we're in the middle of this season. You know, O'Brien's always talking about, I'm looking forward to the next meeting. I'm not even looking past this or this or that. Well, I'm I've already the cheese. I've already peeked ahead to 2019. And here's my point with this, Seth. That's I'm glad you brought up the, the Broncos schedule because the 
you know, in the NFL, your schedule is very formulaic. You know, you cross over against an NFC division, you cross over against an AFC division, and there are two variable games based on where you finished in your division versus the other two AFC divisions you're not, that you're not crossing all the way over with. So you, you can forecast year to year. You can forecast out for the next, in perpetuity, who you're playing in 14 of your 16 games until they grow the league by another couple teams. It's the two variable games. So the Bron- I say that about the Broncos to say they're playing a really hard schedule this year. Obviously, they're crossing over in the NFC with the NFC West, which is which has the Rams and the, the Seahawks in it, um, and would have looked a lot harder uh, with the 49ers if Jimmy Garoppolo had stayed healthy. And they're crossing over with the AFC North. So they've got to play the, the Steelers, the uh, Ravens, the the uh, the Bengals, and, and a somewhat frisky Browns team. Yep. So, so uh, juxtapose that to the Texans, who are crossing over with the AFC East, which is the Patriots and a bunch of poo, <laughs> and the NFC East, which is all poo. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, the Texans, as we know, have an easier schedule. The If you look ahead, I don't know if you've done this, but if you look ahead at what the Texans play next year. It's ugly. This division the, winner schedule the, is uh, well. The, it's winning the division only affects two games, but so it pro- also your NFC South. They're going to be playing the NFC. South. They're playing right? the NFC South, yeah. and the AFC West. Yeah. Okay. They are. They're. I've got it right here. I got. I, got, I need to read this just the, to the Raiders with a new quarterback. Yeah. The, here. Here are the, the. Here are the games the Texans play next year, and this is why the Texans need to capitalize on this window that they're in right now for this season because things have broken for them quite nicely. The games they play next year, at New Orleans, at Pittsburgh, at the Chargers, at the Chiefs, at the Colts. Those are five of their road games. And then they have home games against the Patriots, the Colts, and the Carolina Panthers. They're the quarterbacks they play, Drew Brees, Tom Brady, Ben Roethlisberger, Phillip Rivers, Patrick Mahomes, Andrew Luck twice, Cam Newton, and Matt Ryan. That, uh, oh, wow, Matt Ryan, too. I'm, uh, I'm, trying, I'm trying not to be intimidated by Matt Ryan anymore, and yet I sit there and look at him as the, the league-leading passer. He'd be the best quarterback, <laughs> they, other than Andrew Luck and Tom Brady. Like, he's, like, uh, of the non-Luck and Brady games, he would be by far the third-best quarterback they've played this year. One of the things, uh, we had Ross Tucker on the radio show earlier in the week, and he's actually going to be on my podcast tomorrow. Um, I just recorded an interview with him. But one of the things he said on the radio that was interesting was, and it caught us by surprise, he said if you have a guy you think is a top-20 quarterback, then you have to latch on to him and do whatever it takes to keep him. And I thought, top-20? But, Sean, you look at the top 15 to 20 quarterbacks in the league yeah and they're actually all guys that you would actually want on your team like the the era from oh my god there's no good quarterbacks all of a sudden it feels like there's a a a gold rush of quarterbacks you know what it is Seth is the the young quarterbacks who've come into the league in the last few years have hit yeah they've hit and I think some of that is they're good players. I think some of that is the league has gotten smarter about the offenses being friendlier to these quarterbacks. They've realized there are some things in college that are going to work at the NFL level. Right, because they used to get – you used to not be able to run some of this stuff just because your quarterback was going to lose an internal organ. Yeah. Where now they're protected to such a degree you don't have to worry as much about it. And I it. don't know. I think there's a chicken and egg thing going on. And I think Russell Wilson and Andrew Luck – more Russell Wilson because they actually won a Super Bowl and got to another – I think Russell Wilson might have been the tipping point for for teams realizing, like, holy crap, if we get a young quarterback on a rookie contract who's performing at a high level, it's almost like we have $30 million in extra cap space. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I don't know that GMs went into it drafting quarterbacks who, who could get on the field earlier 
because of that. But I do think that over time, because a rookie wage scale has only been in there since 2011, I do think over the last few years that it's flipped, like the chicken and the egg have kind of flipped around, where I do think there are smart GMs going, man, if we get a quarterback who can get on the field early for us, the Texans with Deshaun Watson, Baker Mayfield in Cleveland, Mahomes, Trubisky, um, you know, I'm sure the Jets probably were thinking that with Darnold earlier in the season. You know, all the rookie quarterbacks who got drafted in yeah. the first round last year, they're all on the field now starting for their teams other than Darnold, who's injured. Well, and I wonder I wonder if Wentz coaches, and Goff the yeah, year before oh, that, right. you know? I wonder if NFL coaches, because they've had to, have adapted to how to coach these guys that come out of college never having been under center. Because now you look at Jared Goff, you look at Pat Mahomes, like yeah. all these guys that came from spread systems where they were never under center. You know, Goff's under center like 70% of the time. Yeah. Um, and maybe this just by necessity, they got spoiled back in the day because all the quarterbacks that made it to the NFL – already knew a lot of the basics. Yeah. Now coaches have had to learn, like, oh, wait a second. got to go back and teach stuff that junior high coaches used to teach yeah. and really focus on the basics and, and bring these guys along quickly. Yeah, no, totally. But I think those young quarterbacks, just purely from the quantitative standpoint, which was your original yeah. point of just how deep the list of competent, capable potentially winning quarterbacks are that it is you're right it's I used to joke around like there's 12 guys that are good at this position on the face of the earth and you're screwed if you don't have one of them and I saw the list you guys did this as a topic on Mad Radio and I thought it was a good topic and I saw the list in the follow-up email to the show with the list that you guys had on there and it's like yeah man like you you really do there I mean there are some good quarterbacks who are quarterbacking teams that are four and seven right now that's the most interesting part about it Seth is that football a 32-team league, it's a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. Like, not all these guys can win, you know, because one team wins, one team loses in each of these games every week. So it's it's pretty fascinating there. But I just think the young crop of quarterbacks who are not only able to get on the field, but able to get on the field and play at a fairly high level, like a high enough level to where – like, think of the quarterbacks. Like, think of the, the top seven or eight teams right now and who the quarterbacks are. Like, yeah, Breeze and Brady, like those guys will be around until they're they're told to go home. But Kansas City, Patrick Mahomes, second year. Jared Goff, uh, you know, basically in his second year because we don't count the Jeff Fisher year and, against and not them. The important thing is they're not doing it with gimmicks. Right. You know, they're not doing it with like, oh, my gosh, the league's never seen read option before, and here we go. The St. Louis Rams in a lot of way are uh, like – more, way more conventional than a lot of the other offenses out there that are doing well. They are, but but they they're doing it conventionally. I think the Texans are doing it pretty conventionally, but the gimmicks are available to right. them at times when they need it. The Rams do use the jet sweep a lot. They do, which introduces that. That's going to be the next step in the evolution of defenses adjusting to things. Is that like an offense can diagnose certain things with the jet sweep? It puts the defense on its heels a little bit. I think defenses are already starting to figure out ways to say, hey. Let's make them think that this guy is manned up on this cornerback, but yep. all of a sudden at the snap, that corner's bailing out, and then you introduce more complexity in the defense, and the cat and mouse game begins. Yeah. So I, I say all that to say I'm taking the Broncos minus four well, and a half. I, and that's where I guess real quick, because we'll move on to the rest of yeah. them. The Broncos – it only minus four and a half. Like everything I just said about the Broncos, where they're they're playing all these really good teams down yeah. to one score losses, or they're beating them. Yeah. Versus the Bengals, Bengals who are starting their backup quarterback and are falling apart on defense. Why is that only a four and a half point spread? Yeah, I think. Well, I th obviously the game is in Cincinnati. Yeah. So you know, instantly you look at this, you 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 kind of do the the math associated with it, and if if home field is worth three points. Then, um, then you know, you look at okay. That means the Broncos would be a ten and a half point favorite in Denver, which is a big number. But it's a backup quarterback playing against 
Bradley Chubb and and uh, and and Von like Von Miller and Bradley Chubb have got to be frothing at the mouth to to get after a guy who's oh, gotcha. starting. I think he's starting his first game in the NFL, Jeff Driscoll. Um, and then you look, uh, you you know you look at the schedule coming. There's really no look ahead situation here for the Broncos. They've got at San Francisco, which is a win probably next week. They're they're home for Cleveland, which is better than we thought they'd be. And then they're at Oakland. Their next three games are very winnable games. The Broncos are going to be a factor in this in this six seed race in the AFC before it's all said and done. They're going to be heavy favorites in their next three games. It's actually a really exciting wild card race in the AFC. I mean, there's so many things to be thankful for in the NFL this year. And one of the biggest is that, for whatever reason, uh, Donald Trump has decided not to attack the NFL. Yeah, I, I feel like got to focus on football. There's so much less flack that I have to deal with or take because it hasn't been politicized. So, for whatever reason, I'm I'm just grateful from a purely football standpoint. Nothing yeah. political here that the president isn't attacking the NFL. Uh, the San Francisco for it. Well, actually, let's do your next one. Yeah. Because that home field advantage for the Jaguars uh, comes into play in this one, too. Yeah. The Colts, I'll say, are only minus four against the Jaguars, um, which doesn't surprise me as much because the Jaguars defense still has the Jaguars defense still has a lot of merit to it. It's uh, they they are just they have no quarterback. They have no offensive coordinator right now. Yeah, I, I think it comes down to in this game, it comes down well, a similar dynamic to the previous game we just handicapped, which is uh, a, a surging a surging road favorite that's a, that's in the mix right now for a playoff spot, right? The Colts and the Broncos are very similar in that fashion against a team that probably had decently, well, the, in the case of the Jags, very high hopes heading yeah. into the season um, on the road facing a quarterback who's starting his first game of the year in Cody Kessler. So it was Driscoll in the previous game, and it's Kessler in this game. The interesting thing to me about this, Seth, is it just goes to show you just how far the Jags have fallen, even in just the last three weeks. You and I handicapped a game three weeks ago where the Colts were at home against the Jags, and it was one of my best bets. The last time I went 1-4-1 and a couple weeks ago, my only <laughs> win my only win was that Colts game where they beat the Jags by a field goal in a game they were favored by 2.5. So it was a game they played right around. The oddsmakers had that game right. The Colts covered by, but by just a half a point. So if you think about that, What's been the shift between these two teams? It's fascinating to think that in three weeks, three weeks ago, the Colts were a two-and-a-half-point favorite at home against the Jags. Here we are three weeks later. They're a four-point favorite at Jacksonville. That's how far Jacksonville's fallen in the eyes of the betting world in these last three weeks. The Colts would be, if this game were being played in Indy, the Colts would be, by the way you do the math, you know, you tack on, you know, you, you take away three for the Jags here, you put tack on three for the Colts for being at home. What they're saying is the Colts would be a 10-point favorite against Jacksonville at home if they were playing this weekend. They were just a two-and-a-half-point favorite three weeks ago Talk against the about Jags. Two head coaches just rocketing away from each other, mm -hmm. like in terms of stock. Yeah. Frank Reich is just soaring, and yeah. Doug Marone is plummeting off the face of the earth. Less than a year after being in the AFC Championship game, Eric Ebron um, – is annoyed me this year and that uh, like he has as many touchdowns right now as he had his first four years with the Lions. He's got 11. Which is not a good look for uh, Jim Bob Cooter. It's not. Um, in the Detroit Lions or Matt Stafford for that matter, but it's a great look for Frank Reich and Andrew Luck. And they, and they you know, that's a team that he's not the only weapon at tight end. I know Jack Doyle's injured, yeah. but Jack Doyle's been really good for them. Andrew Luck likes throwing the ball to him. Even this Mo Ali Cox, the former basketball player from VCU, has made some plays for them also. So it's an interesting offense 
you know, Frank Reich, he's made some weird decisions in big spots this year. Obviously, the biggest one that we know of here is the fourth and four that he went for, and I don't well, in, in, the, in the Texans game, and I don't know why he's throwing the ball to Andrew the ball. Luck. I, that's a, I'd love to see the prop bets on that. <laughs> like, what, like, what are the chances? Andrew Luck over under one half of a catch? After that last one, I don't know if anybody else pointed this out. I'm sure they did, but Jacoby Brissett, the backup quarterback, throwing the ball to Andrew Luck high to where he's about to, to, about to get a rib broken or mess his shoulder again. Ballsy move by Jacoby Brissett. Seth, I, I swear, I swear you're setting himself up. I, I tweeted right after that play. I'm like, oh, it's Jacoby Brissett trying to get his job back. <laughs> That's one way to get it back is lay out the starter. <laughs> I did the same thing to uh, John Yurkovich, who was a defensive tackle my rookie year who was starting oh, ahead yeah. of me. He's a radio host That's up in a, Chicago. Yeah, he's, he's awesome. Very, he's very good. He's going to be on the podcast at some point. We'll oh, talk good. about this story. But I didn't do this intentionally, but <laughs> he had surgery. He had the J.J. Watt injury, the uh, tibial plateau. Um and he was in a wheelchair the day after, so he was in the training room, and I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll wheel you out to your car. And because of, because of John's injury, you know, I was going to get a yeah, chance to start. Up. Yeah. yeah. So I'm like, I'll wheel you out to the car. I push him like 10 feet, 10 feet in the wheelchair, and I was about to push him through this door, and the door all of a sudden swung shut, hit him in the broken leg. Like, <laughs> <laughs> elaborate like, plan luckily it was like he had uh the leg was extended out and there was like a brace at the end of oh, it that's hilarious it could have if there weren't for that guard on it it would have messed him up bad like it might have been like debauched uh, can you imagine that story if that had happened but it was 2017 instead of like 1997 oh, gosh, or whatever yeah. it Rookie was Seth Payne. <laughs> <laughs> re-breaks John Yurkovich's leg. Oh, my gosh. Classic. Speaking of injuries the guys have come back from, yeah. Richard Richard Sherman has come back in uh, glorious fashion from dual Achilles tendon surgeries. Am I remembering that right? I didn't he tore the one, and then he had surgery on the other because he had been playing through something. I'm not sure. I just remember the Achilles tear from last year. We should year. be bringing this up more when we talk about Deontay Foreman because yeah. Sherman's been great. The one thing I'm wondering about, because I'm going to be honest with you, I've watched very little 49ers as they take on the uh, Seahawks here. Uh, Sherman's numbers are very good. People aren't targeting him much at all. I do wonder, like, why bother? Why bother targeting Richard Sherman? Yeah. <laughs> that 49ers team is such a mess yeah. that I'm sure people are just staying the hell away from him. Yeah, that could be. Um, I, I, You know, what's funny about the 49ers is since losing Garoppolo, they they play a lot of primetime games because people thought that Jimmy Garoppolo yeah. was going to be their quarterback this year. They've actually played pretty well in primetime games, so that's why before I – before I bid off on this handicap, and I'm taking the Seahawks minus 10 over the over the 49ers, and I don't know if we were totally clear. I'm taking the Colts minus 4 against the Jags in that other game we were just talking about. I'm taking the Seahawks minus 10 over the 49ers. I did have to go back and kind of dig into the games that weren't on TV a little bit just to make sure, like, okay, these are – like they, you know, they 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 got smoked by the Rams. I don't need to watch that one. What happened in these couple of games against the Cardinals? Um, the Seahawks are playing pretty well right now. They're another surging six and five team. Like we have this gaggle of about ten six and five or five and six teams across these two conferences. And I feel like if you did a power ranking of just those teams, there would be a really stark difference between the upper half and the lower half, even yeah. though their records are almost the same. Um, because of how they've how some of these teams have been playing in the last few games, that, that was a good win by the Seahawks last week, going all the way across country to Carolina, playing an early kickoff, hanging in a game uh, as an underdog against you know a, a team that was six and two a couple weeks ago. It was on a two game losing streak, probably pretty desperate to win a game at Carolina, and they beat them in Carolina. You know, in a game, you know they needed a missed field goal by Graham Gano, but then they drove down. And Russell Wilson did what he does at end of games. He's, he's pretty good at capitalizing on those situations. So it's a team that's playing pretty well. The impressive thing to me about the Seahawks is the hard thing about picking them, 
in in games with big spreads or picking them on the road before is they had no running game at all. They couldn't run the football. They run the football pretty well now with Chris right, Carson. Do. Well, you know, Pete Carroll fired Tom Cable, the mm-hmm. longtime offensive line coach there. And uh, like I've I've got opinions about Tom Cable. I don't particularly think he's all that great an offensive line coach. Uh, Pete Carroll did for a long time. He's a hell of a street fighter. They were, yeah, they replaced <laughs> him, or at least office fighter, boardroom fighter. <laughs> he can jump across at an assistant who's not going to fight back. Right. And, and hit, him with a, hit him with a close For fist. those of you who don't know, he uh, he lost his job after he after he broke an assistant coach's jo- Or no, excuse me, he lost his job after he broke an assistant coach's yeah, jaw. Punched him. With the uh, – wait, that was the with Raiders, the Raiders. Yeah. That's right, the Raiders. Um but no, so they, they reclaimed their running game. They're much better than they were. Yeah. And then it's been nice to watch Russell Wilson, who immaturity is not the right word. In a lot of ways, he was almost too mature uh, as, a, as a young player. Yeah. He's never felt like one of the guys necessarily. Yeah. I don't know how much of a leader he could have been with that incredibly strong defense and those incredibly large personalities they had. And it, it, it wasn't even anybody's fault, but you read about the fallout from a lot of that over the last few years where yeah. Pete Carroll just – he had to make a change. He had to bring youth in. The comeback they've made and the resurgence they've had caught me by surprise. I didn't expect to see this. Um, and then Russell Wilson just being – Russell Wilson being so clutch in the fourth quarter, being such a threat. Yeah. He knows exactly when to use his legs and when it's when it's acceptable to take the risk. Yeah, he's always been a really smart player. It's interesting you bring up that dynamic because I brought that up in, in one game a few weeks ago in handicapping the Seahawks, and I think it ended up hitting. But the just the fact that the, it was it was the game they played – just a few games after uh, Earl Thomas had gone down with his season-ending injury. And I know Earl Thomas is a good football player when he's healthy, but my supposition was that there may just be a sigh of relief that the Earl Thomas thing – you hate to see a guy break a leg or a knee or whatever it was with Earl Thomas, but the the combination of Earl Thomas just being sort of a curmudgeon behind the scenes for his own reasons because of his contract, and then the fact that you're right, there's always been this, seems like this conflictive dynamic between Russell Wilson and the strong personalities of the Legion of Boom. That almost was like the last remnant of the Legion of Boom, and now it was, it, at that point, and maybe it's a little bit of reverse confirmation because we're a few games after now, but it really does feel like Russell Wilson's team right. now. There's no, they have leaders on that defense, but they're not these vocal guys that are going to chirp at Russell Wilson on social media. And I think just bringing it back home, it does make you appreciate the leadership dynamic with the Texans that Deshaun Watson is clearly the guy for this team moving forward, like the face of the franchise. And yet there's still a huge element where this is J.J. Watt's locker room that they've been able to mesh those two sort of leadership reigns mm-hmm. and that those two guys you know, appreciate one another, probably helped that they had to rehab injuries together, that there was some bonding that went on there. Um, but it makes you appreciate that because I do. I think you're exactly right about the Seahawks. I think there was a toxic dynamic in that locker room. It's And it's something that almost everybody saw coming, and I, I think Pete Carroll probably saw it coming from way back when because I remember Eric Winston telling me um, like he'd just never seen so many type A – Type A is not the right word. Just, well, alpha dog personalities in a locker room. And then it gets really interesting because of it. Yeah. Because everybody's just a fierce competitor. And you get drama because of it, but it works. Like, Pete Carroll does a good job of tying it all together. You can appreciate the Rams also, and that's the other other pick that I had. The Rams, I think, are probably – had a locker room coming into this season where you think that, like, wow, this is a lot of big names and a yeah. lot of big personalities, a lot of whom aren't invested in this team quite yet. You know, they're sort of soldiers of fortune, like in Dominican Sue, and you get Talib and Peters traded. 
located there. And I wonder about Ndamukong Sue going to Detroit. Ndamukong Sue, I need to think been, about that. He's been a good soldier for the most part in terms yeah. of uh, his on-field shenanigans. Mm-hmm. I wonder if the extra emotion. I don't know whether he gets. Does he get? Does he get booed in Detroit? I mean, there was no. Does anybody in Detroit think no? You shouldn't have taken the largest contract ever given to a defensive lineman. Well, here's uh, the in thing: free agency. That even if they're booing him, the announcers can always say they're not booing. They're suing. suing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I wonder if I wonder if he'll be able to tell the difference. I guess he the, may not. The, the Sue Sue. Whenever somebody does an ooh sound, like yeah. Alfred Blue yeah. or Indomitian Sue. Yeah. You can tell it's more of an even tone. Yeah. Like everybody will do it in unison. Where booing is uh, it's, it's a multi-pitch affair. I'd be willing to bet how he's going to take whatever that sound is, yeah. how he's going to internalize it. He's going he's he's gonna, to think they're booing the chip him. On his shoulder. Yeah, I mean, he's going to go walk over and, and kick Matthew Stafford right in the junk. So you've got the Rams minus 11. Yeah, my handicap on this one's pretty simple. Okay. Sean McVay versus Matt Patricia. You got one guy who's like this handsome Hollywood, goodwill hunting, offensive coordinator turned head coach, <laughs> the smartest guy in the league, against some dude who looks like he slides headfirst into a dirty laundry hamper every morning and just he 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 decides to wear whatever sticks to him from static cling. Like that's it. And he's got he's out in the cold again. They're practicing in the icy weather, uh, even though the game is indoors. I actually I approve of that tactic. Um, the only problem is that he's got to fight against all these other failed Belichick assistants who try so hard to be like Belichick. Yeah. Belichick does it for a reason. They practice in the cold just so that it's not just so they'll be good in icy conditions. It's just so that they'll they learn how to fight through any kind of well, conditions. And they actually play in an outdoor stadium. Yeah, there's that like, too. <laughs> Matt Patricia's out there. They play indoors. Yeah. <laughs> They're playing all their games indoors like for the next three weeks after that stupid practice. There is a handicapping element to this game, and the Texans were – the Texans actually didn't cover against Washington a couple weeks ago, so they they went against the the trend with this handicap. But I think I brought it up that day uh, when we were talking about this. Seth is um, road favorites, which the Rams are minus eleven in Detroit this week. Road favorites coming off of a bye week uh. over the last eighty five or eighty six games yep. of that specific instance cover 73% of the time. Oh, okay. The Texans didn't cover they only they only missed by half a point, but they didn't cover against Washington cuz they only won by 2 in a game they could have taken over at several junctures in that game. Unfortunately, if you bet the Texans in that game. So, uh, the Texans didn't cover under that circumstance. Patriots were under that circumstance last week against the Jets. They did cover. So, it's still at about 73%, but the Rams are a big road favorite coming off of a bye. That is a good spot to take a road favorite. So it is a week of favorites for Sean. This Pendergast, is as this is as square a week as it gets. In the NFL. Oh, what are your college picks? Two college picks. Two college. I got Alabama minus thirteen and a half over Georgia. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, I know. I expect it to be I, a, a, a competitive game for a while. But this Alabama team. The only games I care about Alabama in terms of looking at their season and handicapping them are SEC games, right? Yeah. You know, they, they those they so they were they played eight conference games this year they were six and two against the spread the two games they didn't cover they missed by a point and a half against a&m they won by 22 it was 23 and a half point spread and they missed by half a point covering a 34 point spread against arkansas other than that so those are two you know, the coin flippers and then the other six games they covered against the spread i i just barring two at tagovailoa getting injured i'm i'm i sure sure as hell ain't betting against alabama for drama's sake i'd love to see what happens if georgia beats alabama because alabama's not getting well, punched out of the playoffs. right i don't know that there would be you yeah, and i know what you mean I don't know that there'd be any drama in terms of who's making the playoff because Bama would make the playoff and so would Clemson, Notre Dame, and Georgia. 
But I know what you're talking about, like the schadenfreude of watching Oklahoma and Ohio State's fan bases try to justify why they're better yeah. with one loss than yeah. Alabama with one loss would be fantastic yeah. to watch. That drama. <laughs> um, and then, let's see, one more college game? Uh, yeah, Pitt plus 27.5 over Clemson. Clemson is uh, obviously a great team, but when they've had big spreads they've had to cover this year, spreads of over three touchdowns, they are 1-5 against the spread. So they, they let teams like this hang around, and I think Clemson, I, they're not looking to make any statements. They just want to get in and out, stay yeah. healthy. Uh, win the game and make the playoff. All right, man. Enjoy the weekend of games, You buddy. too, buddy. I'll see you next week. Thanks, man. Oh, man, I love Sean Pendergast. Uh, up next, we've got Michael Lombardi. I record this interview, for those of you who haven't heard it before, on Mad Radio with my co-host Mike Meltzer and Paul Gallant. You can follow them on Twitter at Gallant says, G-A-L-L-A-N-T says, or at Mike Meltzer, both bright young guys. Both guys who went to Syracuse School of Media or Communications or something, supposedly very prestigious. Uh, they've got they've got the lockdown on sports media, the Syracuse folks do. Kind of a, I, I was almost going to say a aristocracy. It's the opposite of the jockocracy that sports media types claim that ex-athletes have uh, in terms of getting jobs. It's a Syracuseocracy, but they are deserving members of that Syracuseocracy. Talking with Mike Lombardi, this is a pretty Houston-heavy one, uh, but it does include a lot about the Browns. It includes a good chunk about Nick Saban and some great stories about Nick Saban and Bill Belichick back in the day, and uh, a whole bunch about the Texans. But everything relevant in the world of the NFL. The great thing about Michael Lombardi is that you learn something every time, and it's usually done in a pretty entertaining fashion. So here's Michael Lombardi. Joining us right now, he is the author of Gridiron Genius. You can also find him on The Ringer um, and on writing on The Athletic, longtime NFL personnel man, Michael Lombardi. Michael, how are you this morning? I'm great, Seth. How are you guys doing, Paul? Everybody good? Doing eight, great. Eight wins in a row, man. That's hard to do in the NFL. It's uh, it's exactly something that I would never have predicted uh, at 0-3 right now. Let me ask you this, and I'll feel free to edit anything that you actually said at the time, but when they were 0-3, what parts of this team could you have foreseen, you know what, they can actually win with this, they can move forward, and maybe it's not nearly as bad as it looks? Well, you know, I always thought that they would, you know, I thought this year, you know, I thought that they would have a run of the Super Bowl because they got all those defensive players back. And, you know, with Will Fuller and Hopkins and the offense that they had, I thought that they would be much better. But after they lost three in a row, especially at home to the Giants, it really never slowed the Giants down. You know, I, I kind of got off the bandwagon quickly. And the penalties, you know, the penalties just killed me. It just seemed like every time they shot themselves in the foot. And they've done a good job of correcting that. I mean, they haven't had – double-digit penalties since the Indianapolis game in Indy uh, going back in week four. So they've been able to cut some of those down, even though they are penalized too much. That, that, that law firm of Lamb and Davenport, they can't wait to get penalties, those two guys. But other than that, I mean, you know, they've played really well. Their defense has played much better. And, look, they've got an explosive player in Miller, an explosive player in Hopkins, and a great point guard in Deshaun Watson, who's also a, an explosive player. So, you know, and I think they've gotten tougher too, Seth. I think the win in Washington was a tough win. I think the win in Denver, the win in Jacksonville, those are tough-minded wins. They build resilience in your team. One of the things that was going on early was that they were just so bad in the red zone. 
And I think part of it you could put substantively on the offensive line not being able to move people. Um, but is part of that with the red zone, is it just, is it sometimes random? Is it, are you likely to maybe put too much importance on a couple of bad performances in the red zone when otherwise they're moving the ball? You know, I think that, you know, you just got to solve the issues of how people play you down there. And I think once you figure out how they're playing you, what they're trying to take away, then you've got to have a different way. And I, one thing you got to know when you're this time of the year in the NFL is you have to be able to do what teams are forcing you not to do. You got to be able to throw it when teams want you to throw it. You got to be able to run it when teams want, know you're going to run it. And I think that when you get down the red area, you got to have enough balance in both. And I think that's when they've been able to correct those issues and find ways to make plays and utilize their skill set. I mean, you know, with having with having Hopkins, with having Fuller, and now you have uh, Thomas, and then obviously Miller in the backfield, you've got some weapons to create some plays. And then, of course, you know, Deshaun's ability to move the defense in the red zone, because red zone is all about, you know, zone, drop, drop eight, kind of pick up guys. It's always tight windows, and when you can separate them and move them in a different direction, laterally, left and right, you create bigger windows and makes throws. Mike, is looking at the upside of this Texans team, whatever it might be, is the big question, how do they hold up against a team that can relentlessly attack them down the field, especially with the corners, with Joseph, sometimes Kareem, and really the lack of depth at that spot? Yeah, I think, look, they're going to have to win with a rush. I mean, they're not going to win with coverage. Nobody wins with coverage. I mean, you know, we could say that about every secondary in the NFL. Nobody's winning with coverage. Everybody's winning with rush. And I think it's it's really comes down to, you know, Clowney's ability to match up on certain guys. I mean, last week we saw, you know, they wanted him matched up on the center. They liked him inside on that matchup uh, against the Titans. And then moving Watt around to create the right matchup for him. And then obviously Marcellus and then McKinley, all these guys that can rush. That's where they're going to have to win the game with their defense. Who is more talented, the Browns or the Colts, the two teams the Texans play the next two weeks? Well, you know, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think the Colts are more talented because their quarterback is obviously more experienced, and they have T.Y. Hilton. The, 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 the Browns don't have an explosive receiver. I know they pay Jarvis Landry $16 million a year, but Jarvis Landry's a ball control receiver, you know, who doesn't really make many explosive plays. I mean, they've only made four plays over 20 yards in the last three weeks, but what they've been able to do is they've given some, they've given the offense a chance to utilize the skill set of Baker Mayfield, and they've been able to uh, utilize that in terms of the Oklahoma style of offense. And there's been a little bit more under center than you would might anticipate because they can do that. But look, let's face it, they've played two of the worst defenses in football, the Falcons and the Bengals, in the last two weeks. They won those games. I think they're a tough out. I really do. I think this this Browns team is tough to play, but I think you can attack their defense if you can hold up against Miles Garrett. The key is going to be Garrett versus Davenport this week. Has your opinion on I heard you, Seth. I heard, I heard that grunt. <laughs> <laughs> Has your opinion, Mike, on Baker Mayfield changed much from, let's say, August or July? You know, I worried about Mayfield. I loved Mayfield early in the process. I loved him. And then the Georgia game really made me worry about throwing the ball outside the numbers in the tight windows when the speed of the game increased. And I think he's proven me wrong in that area. I think he's played really well. I think he continues, gets better. He's thrown the ball outside the numbers really effectively, and he's been able to convert these third downs and his feet. He's not looking to run, but he's looking to buy time with them. And I think he's done a great job. I think he clearly has been the best rookie quarterback so far this year. But in fairness to to the other guys, I think he's on a team 
that, look, if, if they would have started this year off without Huey headlines and really just got a coach in there that knew what he was doing, those three overtime games that they lost, I mean, they played four overtime games. They lost three of them. You know, they could be right in the mix of this thing if they would have just won one of those games or two of those games. Uh Mike and Paul and I try to be pretty honest about second-guessing coaches, especially in short yardage situations. You know, you, you try not to just judge it based on whether going for it worked out or it didn't. But when Mike Vrabel went for it on fourth and one, and he used the tight end as a fullback on the fullback dive there, I I feel like, and, and Mike, back me up on this. Mike Meltzer, back me up on this. I hate the fullback dive. I despise <laughs> it. And in that situation, especially, especially the tight end, I feel the problem is that you're you're – trying to use deception but still in a physical role. And you can tell right there that Stocker just wasn't up to the task. No, I mean, look, if you're going down, you're going down with your best stuff, right? I mean, you know, you're not going to go down with, you know, why throw a changeup if you're a fastball pitcher? Like, you got to throw your heat. And, look, going into that game, before that play, they had 21 third and ones in, over the season, and they've converted 17 of them. So they had a pretty good success rate. you got a 260-pound back back there. You know, you might as well give him the damn ball, but you put it to Stocker. I mean, that can't be your best play. I, I would say this. As you enter the month of December, you better make sure your offensive coordinator has at least eight really good third and ones because playoff football is about third and one. Who converts them and who does it? It's critical. And if you have to give the ball back after not converting a third and one, you run the risk of losing. And I think you got to have a big display. Now, it can't just be, let's give it to Stocker. That's not your best player. you got Mariota who runs with his feet. you got Henry who's a huge player. you got to utilize their skill set. And if you're going to go down, go down with your best. The Texans are going to be competing with the Patriots and the Steelers for the two-seed likely in the AFC. The Patriots the rest of the way have the Vikings this Sunday. They have that road game against the Steelers. The Steelers, they play the Chargers this Sunday. They have that game against the Patriots, and they play a road game against the Saints in Week 16. How likely do you think it is that the Texans can get the two-seed? You know, I think it is likely. I mean, look, they have some tough games coming up. I mean, look, the, the schedule, when you look at the schedule, I really never think of it as you just mark a win down because the, the, when, especially when you're playing teams in your own division, they're never going to just lay over and roll over. And so you've got to be careful about that. You know, the Patriots rise to the challenge. I think the Patriots winning on the road last week was big for the mental toughness. They have not had that this year. They won one road game before that when they beat the Bears. But for the most of them, they won two road games. But, you know, they beat Buffalo and they beat the Bears. But that was a big win for them. I, I, I think it's going to be – Houston can control their own destiny. They got to hold home court. And if they take this Browns team lightly at all, the Browns will win it. Michael, uh, a question that you're not going to receive anytime uh, either in the previous two years or in the next two years. I don't know why this even came up on the show today. Is Nick Saban actually on the Belichick coaching tree or not? What's your personal opinion? No doubt he's completely on it. Look, I wrote about it in the book. I mean, Nick, Nick was all about, you know, Nick used to go crazy. Every day after practice, we would have a staff meeting to go over the practice tape. He hated it. It drove him crazy. And Nick, basically, when he went to Michigan State, what do they do? They did exactly that. (laughs) Nick has done a great job of taking the Belichick's principles and concepts and integrating them into his own way. Now, when he went to Miami, he had a hard time because Nick's not the kind of guy who wants to tell an assistant coach, this is what I want to do. Nick's more – about like, hey, if a coach is a good coach, I'll let him coach as long as he's coaching within the philosophy. That wasn't Bill, so it was harder for him at Miami. At Alabama, it's easier. He just he puts in his program. But I would say the root of what Alabama is is clearly from the Belichick program because I could go to Alabama today 
walk into their recruiting office and look at their grading scale, and it's exactly the same one Belichick and I wrote in 1991. And I remember the story Phil Savage told about one time where Nick Saban was sitting against the wall in the facility at the Browns saying, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. Like, like Saban had been working too many hours under Bill Belichick. Well, you know, look, I mean, Nick says that, but Nick works as many hours, too. It's always the moment, you know. And Phil, let's say this, we say Phil's career because Phil, Nick was going to kill Phil, okay. Phil was uh, uh, Nick's first GA at at Cleveland in 1991. And Phil was really good. He did the pads, which is a hard job to do. He did the pads. He broke down all the games. And But Phil was never really a coach. Phil didn't want confrontation with players. Phil didn't really want to be demanding. Phil was good at personnel, so Nick had had enough of Phil. Like, I can't use him. you got to get him out of here. So I took him in personnel and made him a personnel guy because he had really good feel for the game, but he wasn't a coach, but he could understand the players. And so that's kind of how he morphed into personnel. But, you know, Nick, was, Nick wasn't Nick was exactly easy to work for either. Now, I can just tell you that. Uh, Michael Lombardi, we got to run. I'm going to tell these guys after the break about what doing the pads is and all that it entails because it's relevant to the Texans too. Check out his book, uh, Gridiron Genius. It's awesome. And his work on the ringer and the athletic. Thanks a lot, Michael. Thanks, guys. Okay, now I will do what I claimed I was going to do on the radio this morning, but I failed to do, which is explain what the padding is. Um, in the Belichick system, every week when they're preparing for a new opponent, uh, they pad the plays, which means they have somebody, a younger member of their staff, and actually multiple coaches will do this, um, but they'll have to go through, and for each play – of each game of their opponents monitor and write down on this pad, you know, one play, one pad of paper per play or one piece of a pad of paper per play, the splits of the offensive lineman, the splits of the wide receiver, the exact alignments, anything different about their stances, all the little nuances um, about this play. They have to write down all these details. And I think, uh, I read in Lombardi's book, I think it takes about 20 minutes per play, but you can imagine when there's 120, 130 football plays in a game and plus special teams, that adds up. <laughs> that can take a whole lot of time. So padding the plays is this grueling initiation process and in, in really an apprenticeship more than anything. And I think that's likely what Wes Welker, who is a coach here with the Texans, has been doing. You go from being a big-time NFL player to sitting in uh, sitting in a room just diagramming these plays. That's what padding the plays is. And uh, always, I, I have to be careful with Lombardi. I want to ask him so many questions about Bill Belichick. It's just fascinating every time he talks about it. I know people get worn out with that a little bit. Just trust us. It's only a few more years. At some point, maybe this year is the beginning of the end. Maybe it isn't. Tom Brady will start to fall uh, fall off. The Bill Belichick won't be so incredibly annoyingly brilliant all the time. Uh, it'll it'll fall off, and we won't have to hear about it all the time. So you'll relish these stories that you have about Bill Belichick. Tom Brady and the rest of them. That's it for another one. Please subscribe on the platform of your choice, whether it's radio.com or iTunes or anywhere else you can find the Deceptively Fast podcast. Give us a rating. That would be great, too. And everybody, enjoy this week in games. We've got Ross Tucker tomorrow. I officially did the Ross Tucker interview. So Ross Tucker on the Friday edition of the Deceptively Fast podcast. Everybody have a great weekend.